0: concluding today on Pentecost of all days, this worship series that was our interlude between Easter and summer. And this series has been leading us right up to annual conference of the Virginia United Methodist Church that will take place, um, not this coming week, but next week in that holy city of Roanoke. And as we are gathered there, the bishop has set the theme for all of that gathering to be the Great Commission. And so we felt it was appropriate for us to focus and recenter ourselves and dive back deep into not only what the Great Commission says, but what are we supposed to do with it? How do we live that out? And so the conclusion of that journey is today on Pentecost, that today is the day when God made it possible for Christians to actually fulfill the Great Commission that Jesus gave to us right before he ascended. And the context under which we get this, though, is not the Gospel account of Matthew, where the Ascension and the Great Commission are recorded, but instead, this in the Gospel account of John is recounting for us when Jesus gathered with his apostles on the eve of his betrayal. This is in the setting of the Last Supper, that First Holy Communion, gathered there, unbeknownst to all of them, Jesus is trying to prepare them for the dark days ahead. He's trying to give them some words of hope. He's trying to give them a promise that will carry them through when they are struggling. He tells them that he's going to send them an advocate, the Holy Spirit, and that this will be the way in which they will be reminded of what they are to do and who they are, and that they will be equipped to do the work ahead. Now, they've been in the midst of a rather large Passover Seder, Some of them are probably full. There's actually four glasses of wine that accompany this meal. And so some of them are probably feeling a little sluggish. Some of them are probably thinking, is it almost time to go home and go to bed? And yet Jesus is trying to give them a little hope. He's trying to keep them centered and focused because they don't understand that already Judas Iscariot has left to set into motion the acts of betrayal. Already there are forces outside of their knowing that are, have been conspiring and are now seeking to bring to fruition not only the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, but his conviction and ultimately his crucifixion and death. And all of these things are working while they are sequestered for this evening up in the upper room. And... They have no idea just how dark and horrible it can get. But Jesus knows this is coming, and so he's offering them these words of hope. But more than that, he's offering them a peace of God. The Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was known as the Spirit of the Lord. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the Lord. They're both referring to the Spirit that God sends to us. And back then, in the Old Testament, if you were to be fortunate enough or in some cases, burdened enough to receive the Spirit of the Lord, you were now going to be expected to do something incredible, something that you could never do on your own. This is reserved mostly in the Old Testament for priests and prophets. It's reserved for leadership, the ad hoc leadership of the judges, for instance, from the book of Judges. And as this is going on, God is equipping them with the Spirit of the Lord in order to speak God's word, in order to perform miracles in many cases. And these people know that life is never going to be the same. For most of them, it's a terrifying time because when the Spirit of the Lord is upon you, the spirit of humanity is not... And most people look at you and go, well, why do you think you're so special? Who are you to talk for God? We don't like what you have to say to us. Because nobody likes it when you show up and say, thus says the Lord, you're all sinning. And so they were often targeted. They were often abused and persecuted. And some of them were even killed when they had received the Spirit of the Lord. And so nobody in Jesus' day would have been like, yes, Spirit of the Lord, let's go. And yet Jesus is trying to transform how they understand this. Now, the apostles were not the resident scholars of the Old Testament. They were not Talmudic geniuses. They were not um, overly affiliated with the Torah studies. And yet, they would have known some of those people and what had happened when the Spirit of the Lord came upon them. So it's really genius that Jesus rebrands it as the Holy Spirit. Very smart of him. And he gives them this promise that in the days ahead that they will receive the Holy Spirit. We call that day Pentecost. Pentecost. Traditionally in this church, we wear red, as you can see. All of our pyramids switch over to red. It's also a time when we read that traditional Pentecost text from the book of Acts, the one with the Holy Spirit descending upon the apostles as tongues of flame. There's the loud, rushing, violent wind sound as it enters into that upper room where they have sequestered themselves. And we have celebrated that in a myriad of ways here. One time we had a giant red sheet cake that turned all the kids' mouths red. Do you remember that? That was fun. One year, I gave everybody those red whistles with the red lips, and we reenacted the scripture. You all should have seen yourselves. That was fun. But today, we're in a place where we are reminded that something truly magnificent happened on Pentecost, that it wasn't just about fun, but it was about the glory of God. Because in all of my studies of world religion, and all of my background and my undergraduate degree in non-Christian studies, I can tell you that there is nothing like Pentecost in any other faith. There are other world religions that understand the divine being present and incarnate in human beings, even for just a moment, but nothing like Pentecost, where a deity would give a piece of that God self permanently to other people. And not just some people, any people that would like to receive it. In the United Methodist Church, we celebrate the sacrament of baptism as an open sacrament, which means that anyone who desires to be baptized will be baptized. We don't hold it back. We don't run you through some kind of rubric to see whether or not you're worthy because none of us are worthy of baptism. Instead, baptism is truly God's grace being poured out for us. And when the apostles entered into ministry, there's a good chance that they had actually received John the Baptist's baptism for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But after Pentecost, our understanding is, has changed, that not only are we being justified and forgiven of our sins through the application of the water, but that because we pray over it with sacramental authority, that the Holy Spirit would be poured out and imbued within the water. We understand that with the laying of hands also, that those who are baptized receive a portion of the Holy Spirit, that a piece of God's self will not only be received, but reside within us forever. And the struggle for Christians is that you can actually lock that piece of God's self away in you. You can't kill it off. You can't destroy divinity, but you can lock it away and sequester it and keep it quiet and not listen to it, not engage it, certainly not be in right relationship with it, or Over the course of our lives, we can slowly but surely nurture that relationship and encourage ourselves to get connected to that piece of the divine that indwells within us and allow ourselves to hear and encounter God in a way that is truly unique just to us. And for a faith such as Christianity to bring that to all people, and in our denomination we understand that that's available even to children, In fact, most of us in the United Methodist faith tended to have been baptized when we couldn't even walk and stand, literally justified. And so instead, we recognize that baptism is the way of God starting a new relationship with us. And that's what Pentecost truly was, a brand new relationship, right? It's a beautiful thing. It's an opportunity for us to have something truly unique with God because the way in which the Spirit indwells in me is not the same way that it would indwell in another. It's not the same way that God will speak. God speaks to each person as they need to be heard. I love listening to people go, oh my gosh, this beautiful voice will speak in my heart and it's so nurturing and affectionate. That is not how God speaks to me. God speaks to me like an angry Jewish man. And and it's very Old Testament, and it's very beautiful in its own biblical way, but it is not the kind of beautiful thing that I hear described from other people. And I have no doubt that God speaks to people like that, just not to me. God loves to call me into account and call me out for my garbage. That's a big running theme with us. This is not what I called you for. This is not what I want out of you. What do you think you're doing? Get up. These are the kinds of conversations that God continually has in my head at a very loud loud volume. And so one of the most traumatic ones I ever had was when I found myself in that wilderness wandering we call seminary. My second year of seminary is a three-year program, and your second year is a really rigorous, hard year. It's a year when you are doing your supervised ministry. It's like internship. So in addition to being a full-time student, I also had to be a pastor, And you don't get paid to do that. So you have to be a full-time, you pay to go to school, and then you're basically paying to be an indentured servant for a year. And I was doing this while commuting in New Jersey, of all beloved places. And one day I found myself on this major highway that is the, the main thoroughfare for people that are commuting into New York City. They are actually, many of them are actually commuting across the entire state of New Jersey in order to do this, coming from Delaware and Pennsylvania. And so I was on this, and it's four lanes in each direction, and we were at a complete gridlock, which, yeah, that's fun. Gridlock! And I'm spending my day going from home to seminary to the church that I'm serving, sometimes back to seminary and then back home. And I'm on this God-beloved road a lot. And as I'm on this road and I'm stuck in gridlock, I finally have that moment like all good Christians have where you go, seriously, God? Seriously? Why do you hate me? Why do you hate me? What have I possibly done to deserve this from you? And God, as a benevolent, all-powerful, omniscient, incredibly nurturing, nurturing, reconciling, sustaining deity, screamed back into my cranium, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Look at all that you have. You are here on a full ride. You're welcome. You're getting experience now instead of being thrown into the fire later. So congratulations on having some good things. He's like, and do you realize that you haven't yet broken an axle or popped a tire on all of these beloved roads of New Jersey? You're welcome. And God just continued to pound into my head. You are looking at this through a very myopic lens right now. You are looking so close to your own suffering that you don't even see what I'm able to do. Right? I have given you a portion of myself. You know what it is to be justified and forgiven. And you know how to do that and get it anytime you want. It's called the sacrament of Holy Communion. You have been given a place of privilege in my church. You have been given everything that you need to do this work and more. And you ought to practice a little gratitude and a little less grumbling. Because I can make this gridlock last forever. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. But we are running low on gas. So this is the kind of relationship that I've had to work through. And it's all a wonderful side benefit to having been baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Pentecost. But seriously, if we take a moment and we think about the gift of Pentecost, what we recognize in Pentecost is that God said, I am not content that people should think that they have been separated from me. I am not content that people should wonder if they are mine and if I am theirs. I am not content for people to struggle with earthly relationships and feel abandoned, betrayed, and lost. That's why Jesus' words are so intriguing. In the Great Commission, in the Gospel account of Matthew, Jesus says, here is what I expect of you to the remaining 11. He says, this is what I want from you as I am literally leaving. I want you to go forth and make disciples of all nations. You are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you are to teach them everything. He says that, everything that I have taught to you, that is what I expect of you, and you will go forth and do this, go. And yet, here in the gospel account of John, Jesus says to them preemptively, long before that moment on the mountaintop, long before the great commission and the ascension, long before that, he says to them, I am sending you the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you everything everything, and remind you of all that I have said to you. And just in case you don't understand what that means, it means my peace I will leave with you. My peace I will give to you. And I don't give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. Parts of John 14 are actually... The gospel text that we read at funerals because we recognize that Jesus' words are so powerful and profound. They are comforting in our dark hours. And Jesus wanted not only those original 11 to have that peace, but he wants us to have that peace now. He wants us to know that we are not alone. We are not abandoned. That we have been given this incredible power and this authority because of Pentecost. It's the day when the church began, and we are so privileged not to have to fight a lot of the battles that have been fought before us. We are Christians who are so privileged and so blessed to live in a world where every single day of our lives, from the day of our birth until now, Christianity has been well established and clear. We haven't had to fight the battles of the early apostles who had to hear both internally and externally are we Jewish? Are we Christian? Are we Jewish Christians or Christian Jews? What are we? They finally had to get kicked out of the temple and the synagogues because people said, no, you're not us anymore. You have to go over there because you can't be with us anymore. We don't have to fight that battle. We also don't have to struggle the way John Wesley first did to go, are we Anglicans or are we Methodists? Are we Methodist Anglicans or Anglican Methodists? We don't have to worry about that. Because all of that bickering and discernment and struggle and fighting and breaching, all of that has already been done. We have truly been liberated to do exactly what Jesus said, love God and love others. We have been empowered to live that out. And because of Pentecost, we are all equipped to do it. One of the beautiful things about Pentecost is that description of the fire, right, that it came down in tongues of fire, and it's as if they were ignited, that something powerful and passionate was unleashed in all of those apostles that were there and gathered in that first Pentecost day almost 2,000 years ago, that something incredible was given to them and has been given to us, carried down the ages by apostolic authority and succession. And so we have been privileged to do this. This is the stole that I received when I was ordained in the Virginia Annual Conference. And this stole they put on me right after the bishop put his hand on me and said, pour out a double portion of the Holy Spirit upon her so that she can fulfill the office of an elder. And then listed exactly what that is, just so I could say I didn't know. One of the beautiful things about that is that we understand that if we ask for this, we shall receive When people in the United Methodist Church are asking to be baptized, they are asking to receive a portion of God's self, an indwelling of divinity that will be there forever, manifesting itself distinctly and differently in them, in their words, in their deeds, in their lives. We have been given this incredible gift. And what do we do with it? That's the question now at Pentecost every year. What do we do with it? Because the world cannot have us simply keep it inside as if it's our own precious memory, and we never allow it to be fulfilled and enlivened in our lives. We can no longer claim that there are enough Christians that somebody else will cover that. We just have to show up every now and then for Christmas and Easter, and it'll be a-okay. That's not the way it works. That's why Jesus chooses to describe the church as a living body that it is organic, that it is moving, it is growing. There are pieces of it that are simultaneously coming into existence and dying. It is a complicated system of people spread all over the globe and throughout the ages. And because of that, the church is alive or it is dying. And we get to determine what that is. We get to take our rightful place and either bring new life into it or stay back. And allow it to atrophy and die. And Jesus does not intend for that to be the future of his church. His words to us were that we would have life and have it abundantly. But not just us. All of us. That there are people who do not yet know that God is for them and with them. There are people that do not yet understand that the church is theirs also. And they don't just come in to be the peasants and the peons of the church but that they come in to take their rightful place. Only in the church are all people equal. Only in the church are you without distinction loved and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have different gifts and graces. The Holy Spirit manifests differently in each of us, but none of us are better than the other. We are equally loved, equally forgiven, and equally worthful. We are claimed by God Almighty. A God who chooses to be with us every single day. And you know that that's a really hard thing. Do you have people that you love in your life that you just can't stand to be with for too much time? You have people like that? Right? I mean, I'm thinking of like a dozen right now. But there are people in our lives, right? For some of them, there are friends. I mean, you might have those friends that you have a really good time and then you know like, okay, we're all going to go to our separate corners now because this is going to get really feisty if we don't. Or family members, you know, like you have friends or family that come to visit, and you're like, oh, how long are you staying? And they're like, oh, a couple days, and two weeks later, you're like, really? Or in my family's case, you know, sometimes you think you're trying to help out, and you, like, take a dog in because your dog's sitting, and the next thing you know, you have a new dog. Right? And things happen, and you're all of a sudden like, I didn't think this was permanent. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. You can sin away your baptism. You cannot sin away God. You can pour out, you can receive the grace of your baptism, and you can lose it by the time you're three. About 18 months, it really starts to show. You can really do that. You can receive grace at communion, and you can walk by the wrong person and lose that grace before you get back to your seat. But you cannot lose God. You cannot misplace that Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit refuses to be ejected from you. It is God's promise. It is God's hope for us. It is God's will that we be living, walking, breathing vessels of the Holy Spirit. And God gives that to all of us. All of us. What a powerful gift on Pentecost that all of us should receive this. And there are people that want this and can't have it. Because they fear what the consequences will be. They've been told by other denominations that you have to go through all of this work before you can be baptized. Jesus said, come and be baptized. Notice the baptism came before the teaching. That you baptize. It's an entry. That receiving the Holy Spirit and being justified by God's grace enables us to receive the teaching. It enables us to become part of the legacy of the church. It's not the other way around. It's not like seminary where you prepare and then you become clergy. You become a Christian and then you learn how to be a disciple. That's the glory of Pentecost, that we have been given this. And churches all over are celebrating this because there are places in the world where people are truly enslaved. They have no rights, they have no freedoms, they don't know what it is to be empowered and encouraged. And yet, in the church of Jesus Christ, they are everything. Everything that they experience outside the walls and the fellowship of Christianity, they find to be true and real and for them this gift. And they embrace it. In countries where people are not equal, in countries where there are caste systems and there's still segregation, in countries where people are continually beaten down and told that they are nothing or not good enough, In the church, they are everything. And that's possible because of Pentecost. You know, a lot of people who find themselves in leadership in the church recount how they got started, and a lot of us got started in acolyting. Do you know what acolytes are? The acolytes are generally children or young adults who are empowered to carry large flaming staves up into the chancel and then light candles. That's what an acolyte is. And so one of the things that they used to do in churches a lot of times was if you had a kid that was really wild, you'd be like, hey, do you want to play with fire? And the kid's like, yes. Do you want to play with fire in church? And the kid's like, yeah. Great. We're going to put this robe on you. We're going to give you this big long stick that miraculously will keep you from lighting your hair on fire. And then we will all hold our breath as you walk down the aisle and light candles on fire on top of something that has lots of flammable stuff. So let's see. And the glory of that is that we recognize that there is something powerful and invigorating about the image of flames. There's a children's book that I have in my office that I haven't yet figured out how to work into ministry because it's all about the use of fire in the scriptures, and I'm worried that because of the way it's phrased, it looks like I'm cultivating a whole cult of pyromaniacs. But fire is a huge part of God's metaphor for not only passion and love, but power and authority in the Scriptures. And one of the most beautiful examples of this is the flaming chariot in the prophet Elijah. So Elijah is is an epic prophet. In fact, he's second only to Moses. And he has this wonderful career as a prophet. He has triumph at um, Mount Carmel in the battle against the priests and the prophetesses of Asherah and Baal. And there he has this wonderful victory. And then he has the encounter where Queen Jezebel says, I'm so angry at you, I'm going to kill you. And he decides to go to God and say, I'm done. I'm washing my hands. I'm turning in my authority. Uh, just kill me now. And God says, look, I need you to take a nap and eat, and then we'll talk. And God says, okay, so you want to resign? You want to retire? Great, I hear you. I got three things that you need to do, and the last of those, and probably the most important, was that Elijah had to anoint his successor. He had to find the next prophet of Israel. And God says, I'm going to send you out and you're going to find Elisha. And so as he goes out and he finds Elisha, who by the way is plowing his field, he's plowing his field and he commissions him and he calls him into ministry. And they have this brief time where they're together in ministry. And then Elijah goes, you know what? I'm done. I've ticked off my to-do list. I'm ready to go retire. And they head over and they cross the Jordan and they're waiting for God to come and take Elijah and this flaming chariot is going to come down. This chariot of fire is going to come down from heaven and sweep Elijah up and carry him back off to only God knows where, literally. And Elisha goes, wait, before you go, I would like a double portion of your spirit. And Elijah's like, my ride is coming now. You want to have this conversation now? Chariot, fire, this. And Elisha says, I need a double portion of your spirit. I really want a double portion of your spirit. And Elisha goes, this is not my call. I didn't ask for this that I have, so it's not my call. And so finally, after they engage, Elijah says, look, it's not for me to decide, it's for God. So if you can see me as I go up in this chariot of fire that I'm really wishing would get here like now, then God will give you this double portion of the spirit the spirit of the Lord. And so they wait and the chariot swoops up and takes Elijah and carries him off into the sky. And Elisha watches. And then we all read the scriptures with bated breath while we wait to see, did he get his double portion? And so what he does is he takes off his mantle, the sign of authority and power, and he wads it up and he smacks the Jordan River with it. And the Jordan River parts just like the Red Sea. And it parts and it shows that he has received this power, this authority that was carried down from Moses to Elijah to now Elisha. He has this power. And he is now the next vessel to carry this forward. But he isn't Moses and he isn't Elijah. He is Elisha. And he will do things his own way. He will do things that are unique and special. For instance, when a bunch of children come out of a village and make fun of him because he's bald, he calls out the two bears to maul 42 of them. That's his way. He has his own power and authority and voice. And he receives that spirit because he asks for it. Pentecost came to us the first time, not because we asked for it, because Jesus wanted to give it to us. But those of us who are in existence now, who are part of the Christendom now, we have the ability to ask for that Holy Spirit. And when we ask for it by being baptized, when we ask for it in prayer and petition to God, we shall receive it. Because God says, I'm waiting to give it to you. You ask, say the word, and I will give a piece of me, the eternal, almighty, everlasting God, to you. And then we'll see what we can do together. That is the message of Pentecost, that together, each and every one of us in union with God and then in union with all of the church are able to do things that we could not even imagine on our own. But God will make it possible for us to not only fulfill the Great Commission, but to really fulfill the image in which we were created. Every single one of us who are here were created to be the living image of God. The earthly manifestation of the one whose love is perfect, whose grace is more than sufficient, it is abundant, and whose power is unconditionally amazing. And that's God's gift to us. And today, God reminds us that we are now God's gift to the world, that God is sending us out with this power that we can be at work, that we can help shape the world back into the image that it too was created to be, a paradise where all people walk with God in the cool of the evening, that all people have something to eat, all people know who they are and how valued they are, and that when the time is right, we shall live forever. Is that not what all of us crave in the inner, deep workings of our being to experience? Paradise restored. May Pentecost make that possible for us, not just today, but every day. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen.